You're listening to a message from Christian Life Ministries in Coventry, a dynamic, growing church in the heart of the nation. We pray that God will speak to you through this word and impact your life for His glory. Well, I've got to say it was good to make it to church this morning not driving in the snow. I would like to commend those of you who made it in and commend those of you who were wise enough to stay at home. It was a, there wasn't one right choice last week. We were, great, we were grateful to be able to gather and have 90 or so of us here for one service. And Jonathan Chan brought a great word last week. And you know, the thing that amazed me most last week was we had three new people, first-time visitors amongst us. And it was great that Ashley and Catherine Snell had made it in and set up the welcome lounge as usual, which was a wonderful thing. Three new people, yeah, they did great. But it's good when the snow melts and at least gives us a breather. Well, this morning, if you want a title for the message, it's a little bit different to normal. My title today is Invitation to a Wonderful Christmas. RSVP. Invitation to a wonderful Christmas, RSVP. You probably know that that means respondez s'il vous plaît. Yeah, I do speak a little French. That's about it. That's not as, I can speak a little more than that, but that's all we need for today. Respondez s'il vous plaît. You'll have seen it on the bottom of invites that you've had. It means you do need to reply and let us know if you're coming. You see, it's not long now till Christmas. Eight sleeps to go. Is excitement mounting in your house yet? Quietly, quietly so. Are you exhausted with the preparations? Here's slightly more, slightly more of a witness there. You know, what I've noticed this week is that people are really gearing up for Christmas now. And particularly, it's begun even affecting my emails. Because normally people sign off and say, kind regards. Warmest regards for king and kingdom, have a blessed week, whatever they normally put, and now it's changing to season's greetings. Have a merry Christmas, or more often now and increasingly, have a wonderful Christmas. Have a wonderful Christmas. I don't know if you know what wonderful means. The word wonderful should be used to describe something which excites in us a feeling or sense of wonder. Have a wonderful Christmas. Have a Christmas that stirs in you a sense of wonder. You know, there's nothing, I don't think, in our calendar that we expect to be wonderful in quite the same way as Christmas. No one comes to you around Easter time and says, have a wonderful Easter. Have a wonderful Pentecost. Have a wonderful autumn. Have a wonderful bonfire night. We just don't say those things, do we? And yet, it's commonplace for us to say, have a wonderful Christmas. There's an expectation among us that if we get it right, then our Christmas will be wonderful. There'll be something about it that stirs in us a sense of wonder. And so what happens is we all busy ourselves to make it wonderful. Maybe we're, as part of our preparations, praying for snow, dreaming of a white Christmas. You know, it looked beautiful last week. This is what... The view was like from my office this time last week, because it looks wonderful, doesn't it, when everything's crisp and white and the snow is here. Is that why we dream of a white Christmas? I'm not sure why we dream of a white Christmas. But I think it's because, actually, when everything's covered, there's a sense of wonder. We get the fairy lights out, don't we? Lots of twinkly lights, because then in the midst of the winter darkness, 
it begins to create a feel that we're after at Christmas time, a sense of beauty, of wonder. I've got to say it's gone to another level on my street this year. A few people normally put out a few little lights, but one of my neighbors now this year, I just noticed yesterday, has got a projection of moving snowflakes onto the front of their house. So, wow, it has seriously gone to another level. We're not, into, we're not going to try and compete with that, but it's quite impressive to see. You'll, know in the, you'll have noticed in the shops that people get busy. Shopping, shopping, shopping. And it's all a bit stressy, isn't it? Have you noticed the change in the feel? Or is it just me that's noticed that? <laughs> it's like, at this time of year, you daren't accidentally bump into somebody in the shops, because they're like, Rah! it's like, oh, sorry. <laughs> Christmas spirit or something. It's like people are on edge, aren't they? Often in the shops, people are quite kind, but not at this time of year. It's like, they've just, I've just got to get it done. I've just got to get through my list. I've just, because they think there's a pressure. I've got to get the presents. Good presents, lots of presents, because otherwise it won't be a wonderful Christmas. There's also a pressure to spend. Can I say to you this Christmas, please don't spend what you don't have. The people you love don't want you to do that. Don't spend what you don't have. The adverts will tell you you need to, you don't need to. Keep it, reduce your debt if you need to. Save it, be wise with it. So many expectations that we have to create a wonderful Christmas. And of course, the food must be wonderful. Some of us, we might feel at Christmas, we can perhaps this one day of the year shop at M&S for our food. <laughs> Extraordinary food for Christmas time. And it's kind of justifiable because the food has to be particularly special at Christmas, doesn't it? If we're going to have a wonderful Christmas, it's got to be special food. I wonder, who here will be having a traditional British Turkey. Oh, small smattering of hands. Okay, let's try something different. Who will be having jollof rice? Okay. Wow, jollof rice wins it. I've got to say, even in the earlier service, jollof rice won it. Anyone planning to have sprouts? Davy Birch and one other. There we are. Some say they're an essential for a wonderful Christmas, some not so much. And of course, there has to be too much of it. Is this not part of everybody's Christmas? If you want a wonderful Christmas, there has to be an abundance of food. And then there's family, a sense that there must be family around, and we must have gathered as much family as possible all together if it's going to be a wonderful Christmas. And of course, we have to hope that they don't fall out this year. I didn't think it was just my family. Thank you for the confirmation. I was just putting it out there, but you've given me a witness that it was okay. These are the things that we think will make a wonderful Christmas. You know, the thing that I found is it's hard work to deliver a wonderful Christmas. It's hard work to deliver it. That was a comment aimed mainly at the ladies in the room. See, I know who delivers Christmas, and it isn't Santa Claus. It's difficult. You know, family gifts, snow, fairy lights, these are good things to have in our lives but it's hard to get them to deliver the kind of wonderful Christmas of which there can be an expectation. But there is an expectation that Christmas should be wonderful, that it should be something special, that it should evoke in us a sense of wonder. And I believe that that is because since the first Christmas, 
There is an invitation that has gone out to everybody. That's you and that's me, sent to all of us, inviting us to enter in to a wonderful and a wonder-filled Christmas. It's called to every one of us. It comes with a challenge that we might reply and respond. And the reason it goes to us is because wonder has already been delivered. In that first Christmas 2,000 years ago, wonder has already been delivered. When it comes to Christmas, if you like, wonder comes as standard. Wonder comes as standard. But sometimes in our own frenzied activity to try and recreate it, to inhabit traditions and other things that we find important, we miss what is already there. Sometimes we don't recognize it. Sometimes the wonder gets hidden under tinsel and a towel headdress, wrapped up and perhaps overlooked. And what that leaves us with really is the best that we can muster ourselves with what we have instead of the true wonder of what happened that first Christmas. It's a disappointing alternative often. And this morning, quite simply, I want to help us again to see something of the wonder of that first wonderful Christmas, that we might receive the invitation again to enter in, that we might respond. So literally, we're going to go to just each of the three Gospels which speak of the birth of Jesus, Matthew, Luke, and John. Mark doesn't mention it. I think that's because Mark was written from Peter's recollections, and Peter didn't meet Jesus until he was adult. But we're going to look at some of the things that happened when this invitation came right back at the start. We're going to begin in John's Gospel this morning. Maybe you want to turn there with me. We're going to read a few famous verses from John's Gospel. You know, the thing about John when he writes his gospel is he always wants to help us see the meaning of what's going on. He doesn't just want to give us the detail. He doesn't, he's not that bothered about what was going on on the outside, but he wants to tell us the significance. He's going to get straight to the wonder of what was happening. You know, if John who wrote this gospel was to come to your house at Christmas with a gift, I think it would be a brilliant gift. He'd have thought about it really hard. It would be a really well-thought gift that would last you for many, many years, but it wouldn't be wrapped and it wouldn't have a ribbon on it. This is kind of how John rolls. So he doesn't go with all the external detail and the trappings, but he wants to get to the nub of the issue. And so when we turn to John's gospel, he's not talking about Mary and Joseph. He's not talking about a stable or the external things that happened, but he's cutting right to the chase and right to the heart of what happened that first Christmas. I'm not going to read all the verses here. They're very deep and rich, and we can get a little bit lost in them this morning. So we're just going to read verses 1 to 3, and then verse 14 and verse 18. It's talking about the Word. This is a name for Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God 
and is in the closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Wow. Jesus, the Word. Self-existent with God in eternity. He was with God and he was God. That's where John begins. He's saying at that first Christmas, right now, wherever we begin, there's wonder. This is the word, with God, and he was God. The wonder is that God himself, who's the Lord and the maker of all, became man. This is the mystery that there, on that first Christmas, in the flesh, God came to dwell in our world as a baby. I know we've heard it many times, but sometimes it can be so familiar that we stop engaging with the wonder of what it means. You know, the birth of this baby in that first Christmas was different to any other baby in any of the rest of history. You know, this week I went and I met Ezra Boyle, little baby, two weeks old, born to Dave and Lisa. Cutest little bundle in a SpongeBob baby grow when I went round. But you know, 12 months ago, last Christmas, baby Ezra did not exist. It wasn't just that he wasn't born yet, he didn't exist. He wasn't in some other place waiting. There wasn't a heavenly holding space waiting until he came. There isn't a place like in Boss Baby where there's some sort of cosmic production area where, where children and people are waiting for approval to be given their appointed time. That's not, it's not real. It's a fun movie. Watch the movie, it's, it's fun. But it's not real. Before a baby is born, they don't exist. The most they are is an idea, a plan in the heart of God. That's how it was for Ezra 12 months ago. Nothing more than an idea and a plan in the heart of God, but Jesus, the word was different. You see, 12 months before Jesus was born, it was completely different. He already was. He already existed. God, the one and only. God, the only begotten Son. He was dwelling for all eternity as part of the Trinity, Father, Son, Spirit. He was there, the Word, whose agency and action had caused everything to be made that was created. Nothing was made without him. Jesus was there at the beginning. Creation didn't happen without him. And yet a day comes when he's born of a woman, coming as savior of the world. John wants us to know this straight away. He wants us to know the wonder of Christmas, that God himself became man, that the word took on flesh. He came to live with us here so that the unseen God could be revealed. This, friends, is the wonder of Christmas. The wonder of what happened. It can be hard to get our heads around that God became man, word became flesh. The immortal took on mortality. The creator became clothed in creation. The maker inhabited what was made. The one who was all powerful became powerless. The owner of the riches of heaven became poor. 
the eternal stepped inside of time. The transcendent one became Emmanuel. The unseen God became visible as the ancient of days became newborn. I don't know if you can get your head around this. If this doesn't begin to fill you with wonder, I've got to say, are you breathing? The magnitude of what happened that first Christmas. These mysteries, they're so wonderful and great, we can struggle to grasp them. And because they're hard to grasp, we can so easily overlook them. They have the potential to blow our minds and our hearts. I find it amazing not just that these things are possible, but that with God they were also desirable. He chose it to be this way. God became man, word became flesh, creator clothed in creation. Friends, we are invited into a wonderful Christmas as we consider again these monumental and these breathtaking truths. Let's move on into Matthew's gospel. What does Matthew show us for a wonderful Christmas? See, Matthew's gospel begins differently. It begins with a genealogy of Jesus, if you like, a family line, looking down the years of who his ascendants were. Matthew tells us also about how the birth of Jesus came about. He tells us about Mary and Joseph and some of the other people involved in the story. I'm assuming this morning you've heard that. If you've never heard that and you're here, come tonight to our carol service. We'll walk you through the story and all the key characters. But for now, I'm going to assume that we know about that. And we're going to duck in at chapter 2 and just read and catch up with some people who received the invitation and then responded. So Matthew 2, I'm going to read verses 1 to 2 and 9 to 11. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And in the next few verses, we hear an interaction with Herod because they'd gone to Jerusalem thinking that's where a king would be born. And they actually get redirected to Bethlehem. And it says, verse 9, after they'd heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star... They were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and they worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. We'll leave that there for this morning. What Matthew's telling us about here is of the first invitation going out that first Christmas. This is so creative. What a way to invite someone. What a way to announce a birth by putting a star in the sky. Wouldn't it be cool if we could do this? If you wanted to put an advert or an invitation out there, if instead of just like, you know, putting it on Facebook, you could put a star in the sky. I mean, this would just be better than what anybody else could ever do. 
I've never yet come across any sort of announcement or invitation that rivals a star in the sky. And you know, because we hear of this every year and because we've heard of it, it kind of, I can find in my head this can almost go in, in the box of legend, in the box of story, and we don't really engage with what's happening. But friends, this really happened. When Jesus Christ was born all those years ago, a new star rose in the sky at his birth. For those who studied the stars in the sky and knew about these things, they noticed it. Something was different and they spotted it. And more amazingly, they understood what it meant. They studied the stars, they studied the skies, they looked at the changes, they understood what it meant. I don't know how they understood that it heralded the arrival of the King of the Jews the savior of the world. We don't get told that in the Bible. I don't know how they knew that this actually was an invitation for them to respond to. I don't think they'd responded to stars before when they'd appeared in the sky. I don't know how they knew that an appropriate RSVP was to follow the star, to go and find the king and worship him. I don't know those things, but they saw the star. And so they set out to go and worship. They understood the significance. The invitation came to them in a language that they understood. Not Hebrew speakers, not Greek speakers like those in the locality where Jesus was born, probably Arabic speakers. And yet God put a star in the sky to communicate with them in a language they would understand that the King of the Jews, the Savior of the world, had arrived on the stage of history. And their response was to want to be part of the story, to respond actively by going to bring their worship. There's many things that we can't understand in the story, but perhaps we shouldn't be surprised that the sky itself declared the arrival of the maker. You know, it says in Psalm 19 verse one that the heavens proclaim the glory of God. And as the creator was clothed in creation, and as the maker inhabited what was made, it's not really surprising that the sky proclaimed his coming. That creation couldn't keep silent at his stepping in and his arrival. I think maybe the sky could not stay silent, could not do nothing. The same sky, in fact, that if you know the scriptures, you'll know that 33 later, years later, as Jesus hung on a cross and was crucified, the sky darkened. It went dark, it couldn't remain unchanged and unaffected by what happened to its maker. And in the same way, at this point, as the maker enters the stage, the sky is brightened by a new star. You know, creation has always revealed the creator for those who will not reject its message. Romans 2, 20 speaks of that. So these stargazers that we hear about, they set off probably from Arabia, Babylon, that sort of area. They brought frankincense and myrrh, which are things that were sourced in Arabia. They came across the desert to Jerusalem where they expected to find a king. That's why they went to Jerusalem. It was the place where Herod dwelt. It was the place a king would dwell. I think at this point they'd got lost. They'd lost track of the star. They'd gone where they thought and presumed that a king would be. I wonder how long it was that they were lost before they stopped to ask directions. You know, I can't help but equate this journey to our faith walk sometimes. 
You know, we hear something or we perceive something with God and from, from God, and so we set out, don't we? We're like, yeah, I'm going to pursue, I'm going to follow. And then somewhere along the lines, instead of keep following, we somehow make a presumption about what this will look like. Ah, you said that, so that means his. This is about a king, so this must be Jerusalem. And we stop following, we stop looking for the signs. And then somehow we arrive somewhere and think, well, this isn't what we were meant to come to. We've somehow lost our way. That can happen to all of us, can't it? And so they needed a little redirecting by those in the know that the king of the Jews was actually due to be born in Bethlehem and not Jerusalem. And so off they went, back on track. And it says that when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. They hadn't even got here yet, but they were back on track of their journey. And it says they were overjoyed. I found this week as I was studying, this is an amazing word, overjoyed. It, it's there to explain four different Greek words. There are two Greek words in the original which explain purely the magnitude of the response of these men. That it was an enormous response. It was sizable. It was deep. It was, it was in no way measured. And the other two words describe the nature of the response, that it was about joy and happiness, delight, rejoicing. It's like one word wouldn't really be enough. It required four words in the original language to explain what this meant to these men who'd behold, who'd seen the star, who'd set out. And as they got close, the joy and the gladness they experienced in pursuing him. I don't know if you've ever wondered what would have happened if those men hadn't looked at the sky, if they'd had a few nights off from their stargazing. What if they hadn't noticed or they'd been too busy? What if they'd chosen not to go? Well, they'd have missed the wonder. They'd have missed the joy, the worship, the opportunity to bow down, to be part of the wonder and to enter into that wonderful Christmas. But they didn't miss it. They saw it, they perceived it, they understood it. They responded to the invitation and set out. They journeyed and they arrived there and they brought their, work, their gifts and they worshipped and poured their treasure out before him. Here in Matthew, we see the invitation by creation itself, the star, to men, not Jewish men, men from a far off land, seemingly men outside of God's plan for salvation. Speakers of another language, those outside of those expected to be invited. Christ's arrival proclaimed in creation, inviting those who were far off. And the response of the star-studying men to perceive something far away but yet to pursue it, to journey into the unknown. Matthew tells us this to inspire us, to cause us to wonder again at the might and the majesty, at the beauty of God and how he works. That there's an invitation to all mankind near and far and that creation itself was announcing his coming. Matthew says these things that we might enter in and receive this invitation to a wonderful Christmas. Let's move into Luke. Luke shows us an invitation brought a different way to some different people again. In terms of God's people back in the land of Israel, it takes us a bit back closer to home. We're going to read here Luke 2, verse 8 to 20. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. 
But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He's the Messiah, the Lord. This will be the sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. And when the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that's happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they'd heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. Now, I guess if, you've got, if you're talking about modes of invitation and ways of making an announcement, if you want to go one better than a star in the sky, then perhaps this is the only way I can think of that you would do it, is to actually put an angel and then a host of angels in the sky to make that announcement. I'm thinking that if you and I were to receive an invitation in this manner, it would not be one that got lost on the kitchen shelf under a pile of papers. Maybe that doesn't happen in your house. We would reply, wouldn't we? This invitation would get our attention. I don't know if you ever asked the question, why the shepherds? Why were they chosen to be the people who had it explained to them what was going on? Scripture doesn't seem to give us an answer. Maybe it's because God has always identified with shepherds. Jesus himself, we read later on in John's Gospel, he says, I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. There's clearly something in the Father heart of God to shepherd his people. Maybe that's why. As I've been reflecting this week, it occurred to me that these shepherds, they were in the fields just outside Bethlehem. It's the town of David. You know, centuries beforehand, a man called Jesse had lived in the town of David. You find Jesse's name in the genealogy of Jesus at the beginning of Matthew, way, way back, many generations before. And you read about Jesse in 1 Samuel chapter 16, when a prophet called Samuel is sent to Bethlehem, to Jesse's house, and he's sent there to go and anoint a son of Jesse to be king of Israel. He's been chosen to be king. And when we read of it in 1 Samuel, what we find is the sons being brought one by one in front of Samuel. And the Lord says, not this one. The next one's brought in, not this one. Not this one, not this one. Until they all seem to have come in. And, and Samuel says, is there, not, is there no more? And the father says, well, there is one more. There's the youngest. So they said, he's tending the sheep. And they brought him in and he was chosen. The Lord said, this one, this one. David was a king, we read in scripture, and we're told after God's own heart. He knew how to worship. He knew how to pursue God. He knew how to lay hold of some things in God 
way beyond his time. His family didn't really acknowledge him. He was the youngest, just sent out to sort the chores. But the Lord had seen him in the fields outside Bethlehem. Seen a man after his own heart, a man who sought after him and trusted him. Stuck out with the sheep but pursuing him. It was in those fields outside Bethlehem that God had found his shepherd king so many years before. The shepherd king who would have a vision to build a temple in which God would dwell among his people on the earth. And now as God sends his son into the earth as the good shepherd and the king of kings to dwell on the earth, he sends his angels to announce it in the same place. To shepherds tending sheep in the fields outside Bethlehem. I understand that Jerusalem is a place of great significance to many people for many different reasons. But if I should ever have the opportunity to visit Israel, I want to visit these fields, the fields outside Bethlehem. It sounds to me like they're a place God liked to be, where God encountered people, where God met with them. God chooses the shepherds to be the witnesses the announcers of his coming. They were the ones entrusted with the special knowledge, the inside track of what was going on. They were given the detail and the explanation that a savior, Messiah, had been born. And they were given a sign to prove it was true. They said, you go and find a baby wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger. And here's what I love. They weren't told to go. They weren't told expressly that there was an RSVP. But what we see in these shepherds is a wonderful willingness to respond immediately. They said, let's go. Let's go to Bethlehem. It's like, why would we stay here in the fields when we've just been told this? Let's go. That wasn't the response I was expecting to that particular point. Somebody's just going. But um, I, don't think, I don't think that's a response. <laughs> let's go, they said. And it tells us they hurried off to Bethlehem. You know, generally in life, hurry is something that isn't great for our soul. It isn't great for our spiritual life. But this is hurry at its best. When God comes and announces something to you, that they hurried to pursue it. They hurried to be on with it. The angels announced it to them. They were invited to enter into the wonder of that first Christmas. And they responded and they hurried. They saw it for themselves and then they spread the word. They spread the word. I wonder with this account, have you ever thought about what this was like from the angel's perspective? Now I understand this morning, this isn't the easiest point of identification for us with this story. But have you ever thought about what it was like to be an angel at this time? Really the angel's job that night was just to announce what was happening to get the word out. So that someone on the earth other than Mary and Joseph had the understanding that this was Messiah, this was Savior of the world coming. Now there are many times in scripture where an angel is sent to explain to people what's going on, to tell people that a child was gonna be born with a particular purpose. We heard about it just two weeks ago, didn't we? Martin preaching about Zechariah going into the temple and an, and an angel appearing to him. 
then there are also occasions in Scripture when a host, a heavenly host is present, normally in settings of battle or protection. But I don't think there's any other setting where a host of angels is involved in making an announcement or passing on news. See, we understand from Scripture that angels, it tells us in Hebrews, are ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. And Psalm 103, it tells us that they are his mighty ones who do his bidding, his servants who obey his word and who do his will. Angels are tasked and occupied with doing the word of God, being in his presence and then doing what he says. Obeying the word. The same word that spoke into the darkness and brought light. Their job was just to keep listening for the word and obeying the word. Through centuries in the Bible, we see angels playing their part in bringing the purposes of God about on the earth, hearing his voice and then outworking it. And I want us just this morning to think for a moment, what would it have been like for them when Jesus was conceived in Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit? At that moment when the only begotten Son, the Word, laid aside all glory, all majesty, all power, all ability, including speech and language, what must it have been like for them? When Anna Grace, my youngest daughter, was just a few weeks old, I had two boys, five and three, Martin had to have some surgery on his voice. He was told that after the surgery, he would not be able to speak for six weeks. Yep, Pastor Martin, not speaking for six weeks. I know you're thinking this can't have happened. This can't. That is what we were told, six weeks, and he won't be able to speak. So I've got a five-year-old and a three-year-old boy, and I, I want to tell you, they needed a lot of directing. There was a lot of input required to them. I've also got a tiny baby. I'm thinking, this ain't going to work without a voice. What happens if we can't direct? It's going to be anarchy in my house. <laughs> so we worked out a kind of card system, a red card and a yellow card for like severe behavioral sanctions, and, and some other cards which had small instructions on or pictures, because obviously they wouldn't have been able to read very much, so that they understood certain things. So we've got to have a way of communicating, because actually if the voice goes quiet, there won't be any direction. What happens in that time? Now, in actual fact, when the surgeon went in to do the surgery, he couldn't find the thing he'd gone in to remove, and it seems the only logical explanation is actually he was healed before he got there, which is a great outcome. That's another story for another day. And we didn't have to do six weeks of no speaking. We had 24 hours of no speaking and then we're able to speak. But I used the story to illustrate and help us to think about what happens when the voice that directs falls silent. You see, the angels were used to hearing the word. It was what directed them, but the word became flesh. Growing in Mary's womb, silent. What were the angels doing in that period? Watching, waiting, protecting. Maybe just outworking things that had been said to them beforehand, but poised, waiting with the best news ever to break. But just waiting, waiting for those nine months. 
until the time came on a night in Bethlehem and a cry was heard. The first sound from the word for nine months. So we read in Luke of what happens in the sky then. It's as if the anticipation of heaven breaks out into the earth, piercing the dark night sky. The unsuspecting shepherds were terrified. You and I would have been too. An angel comes and announces the good news that a savior has come who is Christ the Lord. But the thing here is it seems to not be enough for the angel just to deliver the good news, the one angel. See, the hosts of angels then came to join, and I can only think that at that moment, there was a host of angels who literally could not hold back their praise. A host of angels who'd been waiting for this moment, who said, please don't just send him. I know it only takes one to make the announcement, but let us go. Let us go to celebrate his coming. Let us go to fill the sky. Let us go to give him glory and praise. Let it not be silent at his coming. Can we go? And so the sky is filled with a heavenly host. Angels involved throughout the Bible, one at a time, occasionally in battle. But here the whole host filling the skies. And glory to God in the highest. And peace on earth to men on whom his favor rests. Something of heaven breaking out of praise of what is happening. The angels had been familiar with the throne room of God. Where God is surrounded with praise and worship day and night. How could they let him come in silence? How could they let him come unworshipped in that moment? But brought forth something that filled the heavens with his praise in that moment. Luke shows us the wonder of the hosts of heaven filling the night sky at Jesus' birth. Of the shepherds receiving a wonderful invitation to that first Christmas. Simple people, not normally trusted with important information. But there they were found in a familiar field. And they responded. They hurried to go and to spread the word and to come and to praise and glorify God. Friends, for each one of us, there is an invitation to a wonderful Christmas. To enter into the wonder, as there was to the Magi, the stargazers from a far-off land. If you're far off this morning, there's an invitation for you to come to a wonderful Christmas. There was an invitation to shepherds outside Bethlehem. People might not normally entrust you with important information. You may feel you're not always the first choice on the team sheet, but the invitation comes to you this morning to a wonderful Christmas. You're invited to behold, to look, to consider, to wonder, and to come and to worship. The truth is, in just over a week's time, I don't know what the dinner's gonna be like. Turkey, jollof rice, will it get burned? I don't know. I don't know what it will be like. I don't know if the presents you open will be the things that you hoped for. I don't know if the presents you give will be well received or not. I don't know if the family will get along. 
although I have a pretty good idea about how that will play out. But friends, regardless of any of that, these are not the real things that deliver a wonderful Christmas. Regardless of any of that, you are invited to a wonderful and wonder-filled Christmas. If we'll consider the magnitude of what we celebrate, that those of every nation and language can now come near, that the brokenness of mankind now has a remedy, that a savior has come who is Christ the Lord, that on a quiet night 2,000 years ago, our eternal destiny was changed forever. That it could be said, peace on earth. Goodwill to men on whom his favor rests. What favor that the word himself should come and inhabit, should come to save. A son given, a savior provided. Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus Christ, our Lord. There's an RSVP, a response required. Will you respond to him this Christmas? Will you open your heart to him again today? Will you consider what he's done and respond by moving from where you are to pursue him? Will you welcome him as Lord? and a savior? Will you journey after him? Will you hurry when he calls? Will you come and bow down? Will you bring your praise, your worship, your wonder at what he's done? I know none of us fully understand it. None of us can truly get our heads around this, but we can respond with wonder and with worship. I'm going to invite us to stand as the band come. It's appropriate to finish this morning with worship, with an opportunity to bring something. And I'm going to invite us to do just that. Lord, we thank you for what you have given to us. the magnitude, the majesty, the mystery of the message of Christmas, of God become man. And Lord, we ask that this Christmas, through all the things that we were involved in, that you would help us to consider you, to wonder at you, to see again what you've done and to understand it afresh, that you'd reveal it to us in our hearts, that you, Holy Spirit, would open up in us a sense of wonder and of worship this Christmas. That we would respond to your invitation and come and pursue you again. We ask in your name, Jesus. This is the wonder of Christmas, friends, that God became man. The Word became flesh. The immortal took on mortality. The creator was clothed in creation. 
The maker inhabited what was made. The one who was all-powerful became powerless. The owner of the riches of heaven became poor. As the eternal stepped inside of time, the transcendent one became Emmanuel. The unseen God was made visible as the ancient of days became newborn.